Good afternoon. Um, I'm, it's my pleasure this morning to um, introduce you to can, uh, introduce Dr. Gabriel Brooks, uh, one of our own uh, cancer uh, center members. Before I introduce him, I'd like to welcome everyone here and those watching remotely. I understand there are people uh, watching potentially from Rwanda and Honduras. So uh, many, many people tuned in today. Uh, Dr. Gabriel Brooks, we're actually welcoming him home today, <laughs> although we welcomed him home a couple of years ago when he joined our faculty as an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine and an oncologist here at Norris Cotton Cancer Center and also across appointment with the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. Uh, Gabe really is, though, home in a sense in that he was actually born at Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital, and he lived in the Upper Valley until the age of two, uh, at which time he left for a few years. Uh, but 16 years later, he did return as a Dartmouth undergraduate, um, and he completed um, his uh, undergraduate studies, majoring in uh, biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, he went away from the Upper Valley again, went off to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, did a residency at the University of Colorado, and then a fellowship in medical oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Um, over that time period, he also did an MPH in uh, the program in clinical effectiveness at Harvard School of Public Health, and he became very interested in cancer-related health services research, uh, with one of the main, his main themes uh, being the role of hospitalizations in cancer care, and um, in particular interest in looking at ways to prevent hospitalizations in cancer care, avoidable hospitalizations. And he will be sharing um, some of his work in that area with us today. So join me in welcoming Gabe. So I, I need to, can people hear me uh, off this mic? I did one, I, I just have to say one thing. I, I failed to say that the following conflict of interest statements. Dr. Brooks does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use, and he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Thank you very much. So I need to say a special thank you to Anna. Um, as an, as an early, early career researcher, Anna has, has sort of ex been my accepting mentor here and taken me under her wing, um, and I'm very grateful to her for that. Um, so I want to talk today about some research that um, I'm getting ready to write up um, in the form of a, um, a couple different, uh, different manuscripts. Um, so this is, I'll be talking about two different projects um, that have a common element to them, um, and they relate to chemotherapy regimens, patient characteristics, and hospitalization risk. This title is a little shorter than the one that I circulated initially, but they're both boring, and I need to learn how to get better at, at doing titles. Um, <laughs> I, th I think Grand Rounds the other day was Getting to Zero Colorectal Cancer Deaths, and I said, like, that is a good title. Um, so I'm going to learn to do that. Um, I have no potential conflicts, as you've already heard, I have no potential conflicts of interest to report. Um, so I'm going to be talking about hospitalizations in cancer care, and I saw this headline in the New York Times um, from a, a little opinion piece by uh, Ezekiel Manuel. I'm talking about inpatient hospitalizations that are declining in the United States. Um, so this runs a little counter to maybe what I'm, what I'm here to talk about, but in what year did, did people think that hospitalizations reached their peak in the United States in terms of an absolute number of hospitalizations? Any guesses? So apparently it was 1981. 
um, which is remarkable when you think, I, I don't know what the population of the United States was then, but it was certainly less than it is now. Um, and um, I think that this was attributable in the, in the opinion piece to, in part, to um, complex care that can be safely and effectively provided elsewhere, and that this is good news. And I think that we've seen that in oncology. A lot of the care that we, that we deliver um, used to be inpatient care, and it is um, especially in medical oncology, and it, it's now outpatient care. Chemotherapy is rarely given for solid tumors as an inpatient. Um, and even some bone marrow transplant procedures can be done um, with short hospitalizations or even, you know, in the out, part, part of those can be done in the outpatient setting. So we're really learning um, that, that the hospital doesn't need to be the locus for all of our care and that much of it can be delivered in an ambulatory setting. At the same time, uh, hospitalizations in cancer care are common and costly. Um, this is some data from a recently report, re released report uh, of the oncology care model, which is um, the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services episode-based payment model for cancer care. Um, in that, um, the, this is just some baseline information. If you take a six-month episode of care for a patient who's receiving chemotherapy, um, the, average, the average number of hospitalizations is 0.39 hospitalizations over that six-month period. Or uh, another way to say that is, for 100 patients who receive care for six months, you'd expect to have 39 hospitalizations. Um, um, among ho people who have a hospitalization, their readmission rate is 40% um, within 30 days. That's pretty high when you compare it to uh, CHF or other conditions. Um, that, that's higher than you would expect. Um, and the average cost for a six-month episode of care that has at least one hospitalization is greater than the hospital costs are greater than $13,000. Um, and that's consistent with we know that a, a hospital, Medicare pays um, over $10,000 for hospitalization depending on the DRG and other factors. But, you know, $10,000 is kind of a minimum, um, and we often see considerably more than that. Um, so the, the, that number, this is the 0 0.39 hospitalizations for six months, um, that's all comers in that oncology care model. Um, if we look at it by cancer type, um, we see that there's considerable differences by, um, by cancer type. So lung cancer patients are sicker and, and are more likely to have a hospitalization. Um, colon cancer patients and lymphoma patients are, are relatively likely to have a hospitalization. And breast cancer patients, many of whom are receiving adjuvant hormonal therapies in that, in that model, um, are much less likely to have a hospitalization. So there are patient characteristics that we can readily identify that are going to help us understand who's at risk for hospitalization. Uh, another reason to study hospitalizations is that they're distressing um, to our patients. And while I don't actually have a lot of data to show you about that, I think that if you take care of patients, uh, this, is, this is not new. Um, I'm on the inpatient service right now. Um, I have a couple patients who, um, when we talk to them and ask them, what's your, what's your, what's your short-term goal? And, and the answer is almost invariably, I'd like to get home. I'd like to get out of the hospital. Um, because people don't want to be here. They want the care. That, they came here because they, they don't want to be sick, but nor do they want to be in the hospital. So the hypothesis here that's underlying this is that um, reforms in the delivery of ambulatory cancer care can further reduce hospitalizations and simultaneously improve quality of care and patient experience. Um, so that's um, sort of a big picture hypothesis um, behind looking at cancer care delivery research and, and how we can reduce hospitalizations. So some approaches to um, prevent reducing hospitalizations are that we can improve chemotherapy selection. Um, we can do a better job with supportive care uh, during chemotherapy treatment. 
We can enhance proactive outreach to patients throughout the course of treatment. Um, so we can, instead of waiting for them to show up in our office, we can reach out and ask, how are you doing? Um, and there are various ways to do this. Um, Ethan Bash has talked about his work to, um, to, do patient, to solicit patient-reported outcomes between patient visits. Um, and then palliative care has, has become a big thrust of, of our um, work to support patients um, with cancer, um, and I think that that continues to be an important component of what we do. Um, so today, uh, I'm going to, I told you I would talk about two projects. Um, one looking at the comparative risk of hospitalization associated with uh, differing standard of care chemotherapy regimens. So the idea being that for lung cancer or pancreas cancer, we have multiple choices with how, we're gonna, how we will choose to treat our patients. Um, and, and they're considered either equivalent or interchangeable in various ways. Um, and we usually compare them based on uh, hospital, based on survival, and which, which regimen is associated with the best survival. And I'd like to introduce um, hospitalization risk as another factor that we can use when we think about these different regimens. Um, and also want, I'm going to talk about using routinely collected clinical data for risk stratification to understand which patients are at increased risk for hospitalization based on their, their real-time identifiable characteristics. And, um, and then the, the third point, which unfortunately I'm probably not going to, is where I, I myself will be going, trying to go, is how do we put these pieces together um, to actually change our care delivery system. Um, because, you know, it's, it's all well and good to identify who's at risk for hospitalization, but the important next step is doing something about it um, so that their risk of hospitalization can be reduced. Um, so the theme here is, is that um, better information about hospitalization risk during chemotherapy um, is it's possible to have better information, and then the question is what to do with that information, I think. Um, I was asked to, to give ob objectives, um, and I'll show these briefly, um, that kind of tie in with what I just spoke about. So um, the first project is, again, standard of care chemotherapy regimens um, that are considered equivalent, um, and that equivalency is usually based on uh, similar survival outcomes. And then how do we choose a regimen when we have multiple alternatives? You know, I treat patients with pancreatic cancer, and, and there's always a discussion that we could give you gemcitabine, we could give you gemcitabine with a NAD paclitaxel, or we could give you fulfirinox, or we could give you supportive care. Any of those are options. Um, and here, here are the different survival outcomes. And then we say, this one's a little harder, this one's a little easier, and this one uh, is, is hardest. Um, but there's not a lot of quantification necessarily behind that. So going to the example of lung cancer, um, this is a classic paper from 2002 published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, looking at four regimens for treatment of um, advanced lung, metastatic lung cancer. Um, three were cisplatin-based regimens, and one was a carboplatin-based regimen of carboplatin and paclitaxel. The survival curves you can see are basically overlapping. Um, so this was a disappointment, I'm sure, at the time. I, I wasn't an oncologist at this time, but this is not what you're looking for when you design a clinical trial. Um, the median overall survival across these four arms was 7.9 months. Um, we've come a long way since 2002 in um, lung cancer treatment, but a lot of patients are still treated with carboplatin and paclitaxel, despite the fact that, that we've come as far as we have. Um, so this, these data are still relevant. Um, and then when we're trying to compare toxicity across these four regimens, you get a table like this. Um, how helpful is this table? How, how um, you know, how readily does it distill the key, the key factors? 
Um, I would argue it's, it's challenging to, to look at that table and, and figure, out, figure out what you're looking for, but um, I've highlighted a couple rows. Um, the cisplatin-containing regimens were associated with higher rates of febrile neutropenia, um, and then all of the cisplatin regimens um, had um, grade 4 nausea that um, was close to 20%, if not higher, whereas the carboplatin and paclitaxel um, had uh, less than 10% uh, grade 4 nausea and vomiting. Um, so um, based on this, carboplatin and paclitaxel became one, the leading regimen for treatment of lung cancer um, in the, in the mid-2000s um, into the into 2010s, and up till today remains one of the more common regimens. So for this project, um, uh, I sought to use the SEER Medicare linked data, which is um, Medicare patients receiving um, standard of care treatment um, with claim with their claims, um, and then I have uh, their cancer stage from the SEER database. Um, so using that, that cohort of patients um, to look at these outcomes um, in this real-world population. 30-day risk of hospitalization, so within 30 days of receiving chemotherapy, their first chemotherapy treatment, their 90-day cumulative hospitalizations, and uh, their 90-day restricted mean hospital-free survival. So these are outcomes that um, I got together at, at the time with, um, with some collaborators, and we th said, what, what are outcomes that are going to help us understand hospitalization in a comparable way across patient populations? And these are the outcomes we chose. Um, because some of these patients don't live, you know, if, if we measure six-month hospitalizations in lung cancer patients, well, some of these patients don't live six months. And so um, it's, it, you're, you have this important competing risk problem of uh, hospitalization and death. And to illustrate that um, and to talk about this outcome of restricted mean hospital-free survival, which may be a little foreign, um, patient A here um, starts chemotherapy on day zero, survives greater than 90 days. So that patient is assigned a, a hospital-free survival of 90 days. Patient B dies on day 60. Now, if you're just counting hospitalizations, this patient doesn't contribute any hospitalizations. Um, but it's not necessarily, not necessarily a good outcome. So in this outcome of restricted mean hospital-free survival, this patient contributes 60 days. Um, patient C is hospitalized on day 60, and dies on day 90, that patient also contributes 60 days. So you're, this is an outcome that is both incorporates both hospitalizations and survival, um, so that um, and it gives context to looking at either hospitalizations alone or survival alone. So um, in lung cancer, the first thing that we did is we looked at the data and we, we wanted to find out which, which regimens are we talking about here because there's not, a, um, because there's not necessarily a, um, a lot of readily accessible data about what are the most common regimens that are actually being used in the real world. And then what we found, which probably shouldn't be surprising, is that um, the, the two most common regimens for, um, for non-small cell lung cancer were carboplatin paclitaxel and carboplatin pemetrexid. Um, and and uh, I did some of these in, in this analysis some patients received bevacizumab, some patients did not, um, and I'll, I'll address that, but they were included whether or not they received the bevacizumab, um, which is an adjunctive part of that treatment. Um, and so we limited our analysis to patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer because pemetrexid's um, really only used in this subset. Um, and this is the, down here, um, I just have the a statement from a recent paper about treatment of advanced non-small cell lung cancer in 2018 where um, therapy should be initiated with a platinum doublet uh, among patients who 
um, who have a PDL1 level of less than 50%. So this is still the current standard of care for a substantial proportion of patients um, with advanced lung cancer. But, and as you can see, there's no, no greater specificity than a platinum doublet. Um, no preferred platinum doublet is recommended here. Um, so in this analysis, we started off with 200, 225,000 patients with primary lung cancer diagnosis from the SEER database. Um, we restricted that to patients who were at least 66 years old so that they would have Medicare claims and so they'd have some, uh, some pre-existing claims for, for uh, evaluating comorbidity. We restricted it to patients with stage four lung cancer and relevant histologies. And at the end of the analysis, we have 5,511 5, patients. So we, we start with a large number. Um, it gets reduced substantially to get to our analytic number. Um, and this is, this is typical in these kinds of analyses, but, but you see there's a large winnowing here. Um, and then from those 5,511 patients, there were 3,310 who received one of the two regimens of interest, and the other patients received various um, platinum-based doublets or, or single-agent therapies for lung cancer. So we have 3,310 patients with advanced non-small cell, non-squamous lung cancer who received one of the two regimens of interest. And here are their characteristics. Um, median age of 73. Compare that with the Schiller study that I showed you before, median age of 61 or 62. Um, so these patients are older than your clinical trial patient population. Um, they have more comorbidities. This is a real-world patient population as opposed to um, the, the clinical trial population. Um, they're more often men, mostly married. Um, and uh, a majority of them have one or two other, um, not co other comorbidities that we can identify from claims. But those, those patient characteristics on the, um, on the right, let's see, on the left side of the slide are, are actually comparable across the, the patient groups, as you can see from the p-values there. Um, but when we start looking at some other things like histology um, and some sociodemographic factors, we see there's some differences. Um, large, so that once you select non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, you're really left with adenocarcinoma and large cell carcinoma. And um, there were more large cell carcinomas in the carboplatin paclitaxel group. Um, interestingly, um, patients who lived in areas with higher poverty um, were more likely to get a carboplatin paclitaxel, so there's a sociodemographic gradient here. Um, and patients who were treated in... Um, office-based practices were more likely to get carboplatin pemetrexid. Um, so where you get your treatment um, is, it can be determinative of what treatment you get. Um, and in both groups, there was bevacizumab use, although it was greater with carboplatin paclitaxel, which makes sense. Um, it was 33% with carboplatin paclitaxel, 22% with carboplatin pemetrexid. Bevacizumab is a very expensive therapy with a marginal benefit in lung cancer. Um, and I think increasingly, someone... Uh, someone can correct me if this is incorrect, but increasingly there's, there's movement away from that in, um, in elderly patients with lung cancer. Um, so we then, because these characteristics are, are different, we can't just compare these groups head-to-head -head and expect it to be a valid comparison, um, or, or we can at least try to do better. Um, so we did a propensity score match, um, and I want to thank Andrea Austin, who's here, for um, helping me with this. Um, so we uh, are matching by observable patient characteristics to enhance the comparability across the group. We cannot match by the unobserved characteristics because they're unobserved, um, but we do our best with, with the, what we have. Um, so we're, trying to we're using a logistic regression model to predict the likelihood of receiving carboplatin and pemetrexid um, and then matching by that propensity. 
Um, and we used all these variables listed here, demographic, age, sex, race, marital status, comorbidities, um, things about their tumor, and then things, uh, so things about where they live um, and area level poverty measures. So at the end of this, we have uh, 1,091 matches. So that's um, 2,100 patients. Um, so that's bigger than most clinical trials um, of lung cancer treatment, um, but it's an observational study. Um, so here um, we see the, the characteristics after the propensity matching. And we're no longer using p-values to compare the groups because the, that, that's not the preferred way um, because a p-value can change just by changing the sample size, whereas what we're looking for is, is for these to be close um, and, and to not differ, uh, to be as similar as possible regardless of the sample size. Um, so here we, ha we, we feel these characteristics are, are now better matched. Um, you know, it's not perfect, but, but these cohorts look quite similar, um, including things like treatment site, office-based versus hospital-based practices. Um, and um, the bevacizumab use remains, it was not part of the propensity model because uh, we didn't think it was a baseline characteristic. It was really part of the decision of which chemotherapy regimen to use. So this remains imbalanced, and we'll try to, um, I, I tried to do it to correct for that um, subsequently, or try to uh, look into that further subsequently. So I'll pause. Um, so that's, that's the, the setup for that, this particular analysis. I'm moving on to the results here, unless there are questions. Why did you restrict to stage four? So, so um, stage, is, stage is an important determinant of outcomes. Um, and we know that patients, so the question is, why did we restrict to stage four? Um, so that's one of the great benefits of using the SEER database is that we have stage. Um, so one of the, a, a large problem in any kind of observational research, um, especially claims-based research, is that we don't, we don't have the patient's stage. Um, and while we can observe their comorbidities, Without knowing their stage, we're missing this a critical prognostic variable. Um, so this way, we have a more homogeneous patient group. Um, you know, the risk of mortality is, is much more homogeneous um, than it would be if we were also including earlier stage patients. Um, and also the clinic, you know, the treatment selection stage is an important component of treatment selection. So, um, you know, a patient who's got an earlier stage disease the reason that they're getting a specific treatment will differ because of their stage. Dave? Yeah. Just to go back to uh, how you adjusted your results, does that involve uh, like throwing patients out of the groups to get a more uh, similar population? Yeah, so if you look at this, so we started off, look at the ends um, on the top column here. So there was 1487 patients with chiroplatin paclitaxel in, in 1823. So the propensity match is literally a one-to-one -one match. Um, and so, and then um, we, we required that that match be within a certain caliper. So their propensity scores have to be not just, um, not just close enough, but close enough within a, a fixed uh, distance. Um, and, and then patients who don't get matched or whose matches with outside of that caliper do get thrown out. So you go from 1487 and 1823 to 1091 pairs. Um, so this, is, I think I did, the maximum number of matches is the size of the smallest group. So this is, I think, about 80% of the maximum number of matches. So yes, you are losing patients um, to get to this an analytic population. Um, the goal is that you're losing the ones who are, would, dis, would make the, com, com, the comparison le, um, most biased, so that you're retaining the ones who make the comparison most valid. Um, okay, so moving on to the results. Um, 
So we found um, that the 30-day hospitalization risk, first of all, just look at it crudely, it's, it's uh, 20 to 26 percent. So that's a, that's a substantial risk of hospitalization if someone says, over the next 30 days, um, this is your risk of hospitalization. Um, I think it's an, it's an eye-opening risk. Um, and so I think even, even just without looking across the two groups, you say these patients are at high risk for hospitalization. Um, as, their, their risk for hospitalization is just as high as if they had, as if they were being discharged from a CHF exacerbation or a COPD exacerbation because those, those um, readmission risks are about 20, 25%. So this is in the same neighborhood. Um, and looking at this, um, the risk of hospitalization was higher among patients receiving carboplatin paclitaxel, um, 26% versus 20.7% for a difference of 5.3%. Um, and that was statistically significant. Um, so w we can say that in this population um, of Medicare-aged patients who are matched by multiple characteristics, there appears to be a higher risk of hospitalization with one regimen than the other. Is this information that would be of interest to patients? Is this information that's helpful in making a treatment selection? Um, you know, all of the things being equal, I think it, I think it may be. I, I, I'm not sure. I wish Constantine or, or uh, a Case K could t could t t or anybody else who who treats <laughs> enough lung cancer. Oh, there is. So anyway, if it, if you have an opinion, please do weigh in. Um, but so this is potentially significant. It is significant. That's why in the thoracic world, we use carbapen much more than carbapen. And it's interesting, it was, so Constantine is a collaborator on this, on this work now, um, and, um, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's interesting that we still see substantial use of the carboplatin uh, paclitaxel regimen, um, you know, I, I think that there are many, many places are moving over to this carboplatin pemetrexid. It is more costly. The, the pemetrexid is a more expensive drug than, carbo, than um, paclitaxel, um, which is now generic. But, um, but the, uh, you know, the, the tolerability seems to be better. Um, the 90-day hospitalization, cumulative hospitalizations, didn't significantly differ, although the, the percentage difference was very similar. Um, and the 90-day restricted mean hospital-free survival, which is a, an outcome that is a little hard. I'm, I'm still learning to wrap my brain around it. Um, it's, it's a pretty small difference um, in four, only 4.8 days, which is um, a small percentage of 90 days, um, but, but shows that um, your risk of, dying, of being hospitalized or dying um, happens sooner among patients uh, receiving carboplatin paclitaxel. So I think that's on the next slide. Um, thank you for asking. Um, so, um, so here are the survival outcomes. So it's important to, to contextualize the hospitalization outcomes with the survival outcomes because patients care probably more about survival than they do about being hospitalized, but they care about both. I mean, if you can, if you can do better on both, that would, that would be preferable. Um, so the 90-day survival... Um, is 82% among patients receiving carboplatin pemetrexid, 75% among patients receiving carboplatin paclitaxel. And that was significant. Um, that, that was a, a statistically significant difference. It's important. Now, um, in large data sets, it's sometimes important to distinguish clinically significant from statistically significant. Um, so um, we've got to make sure that even if the p-value says less than 0 .0, 0 0.05 or 0.01, that we think the difference is clinically meaningful. But the 5% 5, uh, 5%, uh, 7% difference in 90 days in time, um, milestone is, is maybe significant. Steve, how do you account for the comorbidities, especially in this elderly group of patients? So, the, so we, we, 
Measure comorbidities from the claims um, using, using Charleston index. Um, and so there are established methods of doing that. Looking back tw 12 months before the, before the chemotherapy treatment was begun, and in that 12-month period before beginning chemotherapy treatment, you basically count, um, count the, the, um, if they have one hospital claim for a comorbidity, then they, they're assigned that comorbidity, or if they have two outpatient claims for that comorbidity, they're assigned the comorbidity. So that's, that's how we count for it. It goes into the match. Um, but we do it as a composite, not as an individual comorbidity. But that's, that's, that's an important input to this. Um, and these are the survival curves. So the red curve um, is the red. Can you put your finger between? These? I was trained that if you can, put, that the survival curves are different if you can put your finger between them. And it depends how big your finger is. But um, you know these. Uh, I, I, you know they're not dramatically different. Um, but but um, when you look at the at the median at the 90-day survival and the median survival, um, the, the survival was better with carboplatin and pemetrexid, despite the fact that more patients in the carboplatin paclitaxelarm were receiving bevacizumab. Um, and so we actually looked at the, I don't have any slide. I forgot to put slides in for the bevacizumab analysis, but we looked at that separately and we found that um, in this population of elderly Medicare patients, there was no association when we stratified by the two regimens. Um, bevacizumab didn't improve survival, didn't appear to improve survival in either regimen. So whether or not you got bevacizumab did not appear to be associated with better survival for either regimen. Um, and nor was it associated with increase with any change in the hospitalization risk. So for the regimen, there's no chance patient can swap? No. These regimens are, I assigned to the regimen based on chemotherapy drugs received within um, eight days of the, first, of the first chemotherapy drug. So you only assigned one. I mean, you, you could get, you could then go on to get a different regimen. So it's possible that patients, although unlikely that patients who started in one later switched over, and I don't observe, I don't, I, I haven't looked for that here. But it's not common. So the conclusion is there's, a, there's fewer hospitalizations um, with carboplatin and, and pemetrexid in, in advanced lung cancer. Um, there's a significant improvement in the 90-day restricted mean hospital-free survival, um, statistically significant. Um, and uh, there's improved survival. So it seems like seems like a win for carboplatin pemetrexid um, in this setting. And this is, this is relevant today for subsets of patients, although we're increasingly moving towards um, immunotherapies and lung cancer and targeted therapies when, when we can use those, those treatments. Um, I'm going to be a little briefer with pancreatic cancer. It's a similar setup. Um, uh, so a similar t approach to the analysis, and I haven't... Um, Andrea has not contributed her, her um, good work to this yet. So, some, so this was, was what I was doing before, before I hooked up with Andrea. So um, there's, there's some revisions to be done to this. Um, but gemcitabine chemotherapy is the historical standard of care for advanced pancreas cancer. Um, there are newer regimens that show improved survival in clinical trials. So there's gemcitabine with uh, nabpaclitaxel, otherwise known as abraxane. Um, and there's fulfirinox, which is a three, three or four drug combination of 5-FU, leucovor, and irinotecan, and oxaliplatin. And in clinical trials, um, the, the uh, survival of improvement is, um, goes from six, six and a half months to eight and a half or almost nine months. Um, so you have a two and a half to three month survival improvement with the gemcitabine with nabpaclitaxel. And it goes from a similar six months with gemcitabine to 11 months with the full furinox. So these, 
incremental improvements in treatment of pancreatic cancer. But for those, of, for, but for me, as someone who treats pancreatic cancer, I, you know, it, it's patients do better for longer with these newer regimens. <coughs> However, there's not a lot of real-world data about what's happening to these older patients when they get these regimens. Our clinical trial data, again, median ages of 62, 61 versus 70, 70 plus as a median age in the Medicare-treated cohorts. Um, so again, the approach is analogous, although um, you'll see that the sample sizes here are smaller um, because these, these regimens really only came into mainstream use relatively recently and um, have not been used heavily in older, pop older patients until, um, until recently. So these are pretty small numbers compared to the large numbers you have with lung cancer. So I have 2,000 patients with receiving gemcitabine for metastatic pancreas cancer, um, but only 219 and 237 receiving gemabraxane or, and, and fulfurinox. So much smaller sample sizes. Um, and you can see that um, male patients are treated more aggressively. Um, that shouldn't surprise us, but maybe it should, should disturb us a little bit, or, or maybe, maybe women are just smarter. I don't know. Um, but... Um, also, white patients um, are more likely to be treated with more aggressive therapies. Um, married patients were more likely to be treated with the, the fulfurinox. Um, and um, later year of diagnosis was very unsurprisingly associated with, with uh, treatment with these more uh, aggressive regimens. Um, so this is, the, this is after matching, uh, so a similar matching procedure. Um, and uh, here we see... Um, 194 pairs um, receiving gemcitabine. And here I'm, I'm matching to the reference of gemcitabine. So I'll show you two, anal two separate analyses, both matching back to the largest group of patients who received gemcitabine alone. Um, so this is gemcitabine versus gemcitabine with um, nabpaclitaxel or abraxane. Um, and um, here, I, with the p-values shown here, these, these populations look fairly similar. There are some differences um, when, you, when you look closely. Um, there's more patients with, with zero comorbidities in the gem, gem nabpaclitaxel group. Um, so there's not a perfect balance across these groups, um, but um, they're relatively balanced. Um, and then here's the same table with fulfurinox. Again, um, achieved after propensity score matching, we achieved um, good balancing. Not perfect balancing, but, but as good as we could get. Um, so here are the preliminary results. Um, for the first comparison with gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, um, the hospitalization risk was, um, was very similar for these two groups. Um, so 30-day hospitalization risk of 30 versus 32%. So the, the crude risk of hospitalization is higher than it was even for lung cancer. We know that pancreatic cancer patients are sick um, and high risk for hospitalization with chemotherapy treatment. Um, and it didn't seem to differ between these two groups. Um, and if anything, you, you would expect that, that to be more higher toxicity with the gemcitabine and, and nabpaclitaxel because uh, it's a more aggressive treatment. Um, so that's perhaps reassuring that there's not a, a large difference in the hospitalization risk. Um, and, and actually, the 90-day hospitalizations seemed to be less with the more aggressive regimen, perhaps because um, uh, cancer-related hospitals, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a significant difference in part because of the small sample sizes. Um, but if this held up in a larger sample, you might theorize that this is because more aggressive treatment actually keeps patients out of the hospital by controlling the disease. Um, Again, no difference in the restricted mean hospital-free survival, although that had the same trend as the 90-day hospitalizations. And then the overall survival, and this was to me was very interesting because we really don't have these numbers um, from any, there's no clinical trial with a median age of 73. Um, 
And so we see that the, instead of seeing six-month median survival for patients receiving gemcitabine, um, the survival in this Medicare population is three months for patients who receive single-agent gemcitabine. Um, and then receiving the gemcitabine with nabpaclitaxel, it was um, substantially better at seven months. And these, these curves, very clearly, you can put your finger between these two uh, Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, and if you compare that um, with the survival observed in the clinical trial, the registration trial for this, um, it was the survival was 6.7 versus 8.5 months. Again, you can see that the, the gemcitabine with nabpaclitaxel patients despite being ten, um, about 10 years older, did nearly as well as the clinical trial patients, whereas the, uh, the gemcitabine monotherapy patients did not do as well, um, despite our best effort to match these cohorts. <laughs> so now shifting to the fulfirinox results. Again, um, same approach, um, comparing fulfirinox to gemcitabine alone. Um, there was a trend towards increased hospitalizations in the fulfirinox population over the first 30 days. It was not statistically significant, but um, maybe clinically significant. It's an increase of four percentage points. Um, and uh, there, was there, was, there was no difference in the, um, no, no significant difference in the 90-day hospitalizations, although the trend still was toward more hospitalizations with fulfirinox. We know that the fulfirinox is a tough regimen. Um, but the survival was markedly better with the pulfirinox, um, although very similar to what we saw with the gemabraxane. These are, that would be, that's not a valid comparison because the matching is different, but crudely they look, um, they look pretty similar. So comparing again to the registration clinical trial for pulfirinox or the, the trial that was used to, as, to approve that regimen, um, we see 4.3 months versus 7.6 months of survival versus in the trial, 6.8 versus 11.1. So just another reminder that clinical trial results will not bear out in older, sicker patient populations. Um, so conclusions from this is that in this elderly patient population, um, gemcitabine with paclitaxel has similar hospitalization rates and improved survival compared to standard therapy with gemcitabine. And fulfirinox is associated with non-significant increase in hospitalizations, but potentially clinically significant increase in hospitalizations, but improved survival. And these sample sizes are small and will need newer data, from which the SEER Medicare data are re-released every two years. We'll need newer data to, to see if this generalizes to larger patient populations. Okay, so that's the end of that se this segment um, of the, uh, and now I'm gonna talk about a separate, a separate uh, project uh, somewhat briefly. Um, so the other, the other project is about trying to identify um, patient characteristics that can help us identify who's at risk for, for hospitalization. Um, and, you know, the, the classic um, way of doing that is using the ECOG performance status um, or using performance status, whether it's the ECOG or the Karnofsky. You know, we have two different scales. Um, we use one of those two scales to identify patients who are fit to receive chemotherapy. Um, and generally, um, if a patient has an ECOG performance status of three or four, meaning that they're bedbound for the majority of the day, um, or they're doing very little, you know, they're, they're, they're able to do very little, um, those patients um, do not receive chemotherapy because their outcomes are so poor. Um, they're more likely to, to, to have harm than benefit from chemotherapy treatment. So that's the ultimate risk stratification tool, and, and I think we all continue to use it, and, and it was a major advance um, when, when, you know, when Dr. Karnowski proposed the Karnowski Performance Status Scale, that was a big deal, and we're still using it today. And in fact, we really haven't augmented it much at all. Um, we, have, we have selection criteria for clinical trials, but we don't have uh, great risk stratification criteria for 
chemotherapy toxicity or for hospitalizations. Um, but if we did, we might be able to try strat risk-based strategies to, to intervene and, and reduce hospitalizations. So there is um, an existing tool called the, the CARG. Uh, CARG is the, is the Cancer Aging Research Group, um, and they developed a tool using geriatric assessment variables and other variables to um, predict the risk, a patient's risk of toxicity. And you can go to their website, and you can use this tool, um, and, you can, and, and it gives you a predicted risk of chemotherapy toxicity, which tends, and that's predicted risk of grade three toxicity. Um, and that, that often, it, when I was putting different values into this, I, I got between 20% uh, and 60 or 70% for most patients. Um, has anybody used this tool? Um, anybody here? I haven't either. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I, I'm, I haven't seen that it's, that it's in wide use. Um, and that part of it is because um, the, how do you interpret that output? Um, I think the goal of the authors was that you, you could approach a patient and say, your risk of toxicity is 20%. Um, but I think that's a hard number to anchor on because is that high? Is that low? Um, what does that mean? How should I change my therapy based on that? It's not clear what, what that number tells you to do. Um, so I wanted to do something different. Um, and, and I also didn't want it. the other problem with this card tool is that um, you have to ask them a lot of questions and you have to put, on, put in, you know, this is, there looks like 15 data points here um, that need to be individually inputted. Some of them could be sucked out of an electronic medical record, but others need to be, to be individually entered um, in order to generate this number. Um, so it's, harder, it's a harder number to generate. So what if, we could, what if we could do something from the electronic medical record that didn't require any data input at all? What if, what if we could, um, when we're starting chemotherapy treatment, we could have a risk score displayed for us, help us understand, is this patient at relatively higher or lower risk of chemotherapy toxicity? And I say, what if, and, and that's not a, uh, that's, that's a literal question, because we don't know. Would that number help us? But, but, um, but we decided to figure out if we could at least assign that number. Um, so we, we wanted to, do, to develop a predictive model, uh, develop and validate a predictive model um, for identifying 30-day hospitalization risk um, and uh, this started a long time ago um, using, um, using data from the Cancer Research Network, um, which is a consortium of, um, of, health plan of uh, hospitals, um, HMOs basically, um, and they have great data um, because they, they are integrated health systems. And so they have, you know, I can get claims data for, from the SEER Medicare data and other sources, but it's much harder to get um, individual patient clinical data on lab values, height, weight, vital signs, we can get that out of our, you know, out of Epic, and, and increasingly more and more organizations can pull those kinds of data out. But um, but it's because it, it has been very difficult to actually do this. Um, so the first cohort where we developed this model is uh, 3,600 patients at Kaiser Permanente Colorado or Kaiser Permanente Northwest, um, and then our validation cohort. This so the, the development was was work that was done at Dana Farber, and the validation is work that um, has been done here, um, while I'm here, but using data from the Group Health Cooperative um, in in Seattle, I believe. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, they're very nice people, but I don't know exactly where they sit because I just talked to them on the phone. Um, so um, our candidate predictors, some of this came from preliminary data, but we put um, age, comorbidity score, pulse, um, blood pressure, systolic, blood pressure, diastolic, because those are different fields. And, you know, 
and it's, it's hard to combine them where we could have done the, 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 the map, but we, we put them in separately. Creatinine clearance, albumin, sodium, calcium, bilirubin, neutrophil count. Um, a, a variable that came from preliminary work was whether you had either a low platelet count or a low white blood cell count, so having either or or even potentially both. Um, and then how many hospitalizations you had in the prior 180 days and whether or not you'd had radiation in the prior 30 days. Um, so w um, when we developed this model, um, we, we took these 3,600 patients, and my statistician at that time, uh, Haji Mouno, um, just said, well, why don't we just build all possible models and look at, each, look at the AUC of, of each, each of, of the possible models, of all possible permutations of those data. Um, and, uh, and then we ranked them by their AUC, their C statistics, so their, their, their um, discriminative ability of the models. And, and then we said, okay, let's look at the, t the top 100 models, which are very, all falling very close to each other in their discriminative abilities, and pick the ones that we like, that, where we think the, val the, the variables have the most face validity, um, the ones that look best to us. Um, and so we did that. Um, these are the patient characteristics for the two cohorts that I'm going to talk about. Um, these are younger patients because they're commercially insured patients in these HMO networks. Um, median age of 63, 64 years. Um, many patients, these are all patients receiving chemotherapy for advanced solid tumors. Um, so, so they're palliative intent chemotherapy. Um, and these are the variables that we selected for two different models. One model had, was, is longer and one model is shorter. Um, in fact, one model is only two variables. Um, and that was um, nearly as good as the, the um, I need to count them here, the nine variable model. Um, so this gives you an idea of the variables that we ended up including in these two models um, to help us predict risk of 30-day hospitalization. Um, and so here's from the validation. When we, when we looked in that, that uh, smaller group of patients in the validation study, um, I was pleased. Um, we have a C statistic or an AUC um, that's point for the, for the first, the longer model, 0 0.71. So higher, closer to 1 is better. 1 would be perfect, uh, perfect discrimination between patients who did and did not get hospitalized. And we drew a, we drew a, um, a cut point, uh, a risk, an 18% risk of hospitalization if you were above it. Um, that was patients who were considered high risk and below it was standard or low risk. Um, so these AUCs were, you know, are comparable to what you see in for similar, um, for successful models in the literature. Um, but more importantly um, is, is the, the risk discrimination. So if you look um, lower down, you see that patients in the high risk group, which was 39% of all patients in the sample, they had a 25% risk of hospitalizations. Patients in the low risk group had a 7.4% risk of hospitalization. So this is good risk separation. Um, the, the patients, the high-risk patients have uh, at least a three times higher risk of hospitalization than the low-risk patients. So, um, you know, this, this means that we really are enriching quite well for, for those patients who are at risk for hospitalization. Um, these calibration plots show, um, you know, try to show what, how good we are, um, how well calibrated the, the model is. Does the model um, really calibrate across um, from all the way from low risk to high risk. And what you'll see is that the models over-predicted risk. Um, so the, the, the risk, so that's most of the blue dots are below the red line. Um, so that means that we're over-predicting risk a little bit. But you also see that um, we, we over-predicted risk most among low-risk patients. Um, so um, 
So as, as long as you're interested in the high-risk patients, this, this miscalibration is perhaps less important because um, the calibration seems to be better or, or not, at least not worse among the high-risk patients who you're most interested in identifying. <coughs> so I'm just going to give a couple examples. Um, so patient number one um, is a, is a low, is 12% risk of hospitalization, so that's low risk, so I give him a thumbs up. Um, so this is a patient who has a sodium of 104. So this is from the, the, the model that has only two variables. That's incredibly easy, actually, to use because every patient who starts chemotherapy is getting a sodium and an albumin checked. Uh, I mean, I think you'll be very hard-pressed to find a patient who starts chemotherapy without getting these, this, the, uh, complete blood, the um, complete metabolic panel checked. Um, and so that patient um, has a risk score of 12% risk of hospitalization. Um, so they're in the low risk group. They're less than 18%, which is the threshold that we used for this. Um, that was a, we, we chose that threshold before we ran the, the validation. Um, and, but you can move, in practice, you could move it up or down as you needed to. Um, model, uh, second patient, uh, patient B, um, has, a, has a sodium. So just imagine your own patients who are starting chemotherapy. I mean, this is, a, this is not an, an unusual patient, a sodium of 137 and an albumin of 3.4. So a normal albumin would be greater than 4. This patient probably has, um, probably has poor nutrition um, resulting from their cancer and leading to that lower albumin. Um, and they have a risk score of 18%. So they're, they're right on that cut point um, of, of uh, between being low risk, to, between standard risk and high risk. And then you have a patient who has a sodium of 134 and an albumin of 2.8. And I've had these patients, too, um, who, you know, probably significantly poor nutrition. Um, their, risk, their risk of hospitalization is 27%. Um, and and you, can, you can implement, you can do this in a, an Excel spreadsheet, or you could do this on a web-based calculator, or you could ideally you do it within the electronic health record and just display this um, within the electronic health record. So the conclusion here is that you can use routinely collected data um, that is structured um, and that can be really sucked right out of the medical record and into these predictive models to predict the risk of hospitalization, um, and that even a two-variable model with just two predictors, albumin and uh, sodium, um, so separated patients into risk groups of 24% versus 8%, um, so really pretty good risk stratification from, two, from just two variables, and arguably as good as, I mean, arguably as good as the CARD model, which had a similar AUC for, for predicting a different outcome. Um, so, um, and so this doesn't require any asking the patient any, we could add, you know, you could add the information, but, um, but doesn't necessarily require asking them, inputting special information. So that's, those, that's the main, those are the, those are the two projects I, I wanted to present today. Um, and um, it represents a fair amount of work um, and, and then if, you, if you're sitting there and you're asking, well, what next, um, that's, that's the right question. Um, because just, just figuring out a patient's risk of hospitalization, just figuring out which chemotherapy regimen is associated with a higher, um, higher risk of, of hospitalization, that doesn't actually improve outcomes. You know, that's just putting a number on something. What we need to do is take that information and apply it in a way um, that will actually lead to better outcomes for patients. And I think that's, that's the key because all this doesn't mean anything at all if it doesn't improve the outcomes of the patients who we treat. Um, so when do clinicians need this information? You know, is, is it helpful to know that the risk of hospitalization with carbo, um, carbopemetrexid is lower than the risk of hospitalization with carbopaclitaxel? When, when do I give that information um, to, change, to change behavior? Um, or, or is there something else besides hospitalizations and survival that needs to feed into this calculation, like perhaps cost? Um, so 
so we got to, I have, you know, in order to make this useful, you have to identify where, where to, where to share this information or how to share this information. And you have to figure out, do patients want this information or, or what, if, if not this information, what information do patients want when they're trying to make decisions about which treatment they want to do, um, what, um, how long they want to continue on treatment. I mean, how can we provide people this information at an actionable point in time um, so that we can improve, improve the outcomes that patient, patients want us to be improving on their behalf? Um, and and the, the last bullet there is how do we go beyond prediction to get to prevention? So I don't, I mean, if you can predict who's at risk for hospitalization, congratulations, but um, you're much, you know, you've really done the easier part of a two-part thing. Um, you know, it's easy to run these models. It's much harder to then implement them in care delivery in a way that actually reduces hospitalizations. Um, and I have a pilot grant now um, that I'm hoping, you know, will help me, under, help me think better about this, about what are the, way, what are the things that, that um, oncology practices, whether academic or community, what are the things that we can actually do in the flow of care, you know, to reduce, the, to, to help patients stay out of the hospital, to keep them healthy so they can continue to get the treatments that hopefully will help them live longer? Um, is it, you know, is it, is it reaching out to patients between visits? Is it... Um, being certain that the patients are taught about how to, how to do their own, is it patient activation, helping them do their own self-management, um, you know, just learning about what are the things that we can do um, to improve these outcomes. <coughs> so I want to take questions in the last, last uh, five, seven minutes, but I also I want to thank um, uh, funding from the ASCO, um, ASCO Conquer Cancer Foundation Career Development Award, which um, is, is really what has driven most of, most of what I presented today. Um, in addition to a pilot grant that I mentioned from the Cancer Research Network that started the, um, the Risk Prediction Project. Um, I want to thank Deb Schrag, who is my mentor at Dana-Farber um, and really was instrumental in helping me get started in this kind of research, and Anna, who has been um, similarly instrumental in helping me get started here at Norris Cotton. I want to thank uh, Andrea Austin, who's here today, Constantine, who's sitting in the back, um, Haj uh, Hajime, who is my statistician at Dana-Farber, um, and the collaborators um, from the CRN institutions, Deb Ritzwaller at KP Colorado and Aaron Bowles at Group Health, who have been my contact points for getting access to, to the data and, and uh, at those sites. But uh, I'd be happy to take any questions in the last five minutes here. Thank you for the time. Do any of your models take into account patterns of care of these patients? Because of so I do not with any, any the what I've presented here that does not take the care delivery into account because I, I can't see it and, and and that's where I I, I mean so actually the the pilot grant that, that I'm I'm working on now um, looks to survey cancer centers, ask them what they do, and, and then look and then try to try to look at their hospital their at a, at a assuming that these things can be attributable to a cancer center. Assuming that it, the practices that are in place at a cancer center are similar across a population so that you can help figure out well which practices are driving these differences, which I think is what I think is what you're getting at. So no, these look at these these look at assuming assuming that What's in that, that there's that all these patients are receiving similar care, which um, over over larger groups of patients they probably are, but but we can't really infer what um, which kind of practices are, are helping or, or hurting as far as care delivery. Yeah. 
Is there any evidence that I mean, there are companies out there now that are developing pathways with the thought being the standardized care improved efficacy? Is there any evidence that that will decrease ER visits or hospitalization? So United Health um, and Lee Newcomer at United Health um, had a paper about their pathways program um, that they implemented and and. and in lung, including in lung cancer patients, and they saw a reduction in hospitalizations by implementing a pathways program. So pathways programs are programs where there is a specific chemotherapy regimen that is supposed to be selected for patients with lung cancer. So instead of just saying, you choose whatever you want to treat this patient, you're supposed to choose a specific, if, if the diagnosis is lung cancer, you're supposed to assume, uh, use a specific regimen. And in, in one, one study, that, I mean, the problem is the data on this are poor. In that one study, there was a reduction in hospitalizations, um, and that was actually where all of the sa all of the monetary savings in that um, pathways program appeared to come out of fewer hospitalizations. And whether that was attributable to the pathways program, you know, is a little unclear. But they chose to say that it was. Um, so there's not the data on this at all. But there's yeah, there's lots of places that will tell you that they can do this and save your health system money. Um, So you talked about hospitalizations, but um, my colleague in the back there talked about something interesting. Does, have you thought about looking at the same thing in terms of ER visits, which may or may not lead to a hospitalization? Yes, yeah, so um, I, have been, I have been focused on, on hospitalizations for a couple of different reasons, I mean, but, but I think that would be another, you know, you could certainly apply a similar approach to that. The reason why I focused on hospitalizations is that actually a majority, in cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, a majority of ED visits do translate to hospitalizations, at least usually about 60%. Um, and that most of the cost is with the hospitalizations, not the ED visits. So, but, but, but patients arguably don't want to be in the ED either. So from a patient perspective, yes, you'd like to prevent both. From a cost perspective, if you focus on the hospitalizations, it's likely that you'll also reduce ED visits and, and the cost will come down. So I've, that's why I've chosen to focus on the hospitalizations. But I, I would assume that the same things that prevent hospitalizations also prevent ED visits. <laughs> you measure hospitalizations. I think you, the way you measure is whether they have hospitalization, but you don't measure how many days they stay in the hospital. So you the survival time for three months, but how many days among those three months is outside hospital? Could you provide that information for patients as well? So yeah. they have a chance. They can do all patients. Yeah, that's a great that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, so because I know that uh, Carrie Kala had a paper about that in the New England. I don't know if you were on that paper as well. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that, that, that's a great idea. Um, thank, thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you.